of the Jewish New Year. So I want to acknowledge that. And I'm pretty sure there'd be more people here if it wasn't for that. Um, so tonight, it's interesting because usually when I, when I give talks, when I give talks, I usually give you a title before it happens. And this go around, I didn't really give them a title. They just said, could you give a talk on the 24th? And I said, yes. <laughs> and so I'm here. And so I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about. And I realized that I didn't really have a topic. But the more I thought about it, because I'm in the process of giving presentations all the time, and it's beginning of basketball season. I work with basketball teams. And people seem to be really interested in performance. And they seem to be really interested in mindfulness, this thing called mindfulness. And so from my, from my view, I think I'd like to expand what is considered mindfulness. Although if you go by the teachings in terms of especially mindfulness, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness or the Satipatthana Sutta, it talks about the domain of practice being, you know, daily life. But it's very, when you hear people talk about their meditation practice or mindfulness meditation, it's usually concerning sitting or being silent or being on retreat or whatever. But believe it or not, practicing mindfulness meditation or practicing being present for our lives can be something that we can do from the time that we uh, wake up in the, from, from the time we wake up in the morning until the time we go to sleep. That there is this ability to just pay attention and be, be aware of what's going on inside. So it's sort of like an inside job. So I wanted to talk about it, and I thought about, well, as, as people, you know, we have a human birth, and that is very precious. But if you really think about it, you know, what are we? If you, if you think about it, what are we? Or what is it that we're trying to consume or get more of? And to me, it's really obvious, especially when I watch um, how the universe works and seeing all the stars and how long it takes the light from a star to reach us and how huge the universe is, just to think about the fact that the Milky Way, which is the galaxy that we're in, I think I heard them say it takes a, a something like, a, I don't know if it was 100,000 or 100 billion light years to go from one end to the other, and that there's hundreds, there's billions of, of galaxies, so yikes, that's, that's a lot of space, if you think about it, a lot of energy, and they say that we are made of Stardust, and so if you reflect on it and think about it a little bit, I think energy is really important. And so I wanted to talk about energy in a particular way tonight, and to talk about it from a, starting with a quote from uh, Albert Einstein. I know the quote, but I'm going to read it. Uh, Significant problems we face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. Well, that's saying a mouthful. If you think about it, some of you might even be thinking, well, I don't remember creating any problems. 
So the interesting thing about being in this place, this laboratory, or this um, space so that we can go inside and look, is that you don't really have to take anything anybody says for granted. You can check it out. You can see for yourself. And so when I think about it, and I thought about, well, what would be helpful tonight? And I thought about the definition that Sigmund Freud used for, for psychological well-being. He said that the, the, the reason that he developed psychoanalysis was to help people work, love, and play at their highest capacity. And so tonight I want to talk about or maybe offer this idea, how can we work and love at our highest capacity? Because I suspect that love and work are intimately connected and that a lot of times we separate things, but it doesn't have to be that way. We could actually see things differently. And I'll read another um, quote. It's called Master the Art of Living. And I believe it's by, I, I don't know if his name is James Michener, but his name is Michener anyway. A person who is a master in the art of living makes little distinction between their work and their play, their labor and their leisure, their mind and their body, their education and their recreation, their love and their religion. They hardly know which is which. They simply pursue their vision of excellence and grace and whatever they do, leaving others to decide whether they are working or playing, to them they are always doing both. So, what does that sound like? What kind of image is that? Could you, could you step up to the plate and commit to that? Could you? Yes, it's very, very subdued in here. I don't know. Very interesting. It's the end of the day, so you can see where you could use a little infusion of energy right about now, <laughs> and and so if you think about that, and if I were to say that's possible for you, and if you really believe what I said, what do you think the result would be? You'd be yes, I could, you know your energy would just rise, and you would have some enthusiasm. You'd be looking forward to it. So you can see the opposite of that, right? When you're not feeling it and you don't see how you're going to get there, it's like, okay, do I have to? Um, let me see. Uh, maybe I can get a cup of tea or maybe I could do something else. There will be some form of aversion because, and I hate to disillusion you with this, but it's not personal. That as human beings, that's what we do. If something is pleasant, we approach it. And if it's not pleasant, we avoid it. And if it's neither, we space out. <laughs> and I think we spend most of our time in dullness or just kind of being there but not being there. Make sense? And so, so I thought tonight would be an interesting way to talk about mindfulness and so if we're going to understand mindfulness, if we're going to be mindful, what are we going to be mindful of? And so just to, to kind of start it off by, well, what is mindfulness? Mindfulness. 
Sometimes I talk about mindfulness as being presence of mind, being in the here and now. Sometimes I talk about, you know, not forgetting what you're supposed to be doing and remembering what you're supposed to be doing. But it can be more than that. It doesn't really cover it all, but that kind of covers some of it. Now, a friend of mine, John Kabat-Zinn, he has a more elaborate definition of mindfulness. And so I'm going to read what he says about mindfulness. It's paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, as if your life depended on it. So that kind of gets to it a little bit, right? But it's one of those things where we're admitting that if it's possible to be mindful, to have your mind full of something or focus on something in the here and now, because that's the only time we live. So it's also admitting that we have this capacity, our minds, have this capacity to observe itself. That's pretty radical. Think about that. Of course, if we spend most of our time spacing out because it's un neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we don't even know we have a mind. We're living in delusion, and so the idea here is to wake up. The idea here is to really use mindfulness to investigate, to explore, and to see what it means to be a human being, what it means to have a mind and that the mind can, can what it does, it's knowing things, it's looking at objects or it can observe objects in a particular way that can be helpful, that might even help us to understand, you know, how to live in a way where we're not creating suffering for ourselves or f as, as uh, Einstein said, that if we know we're at this level and there's a problem, well, if we stay at that level and expect different results, that's insanity. So on some level, there has to be an acknowledgement, well, we gotta, we, gotta, we gotta elevate our performance, or we gotta raise our consciousness level, or we gotta find some energy to, to, to do this, because you cannot be mindful, you cannot pay attention unless you apply energy. And so we talk about it as right effort around here. So right effort is, 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 sometimes it's called, you know, energy. It's called effort, but it's also called energy. And so if you think about effort, when you make an effort to do something, it takes energy. And where does that energy come from? That's a good one, right? When here we talk about right effort is, is, is understanding how, you know, knowing it's, it's a, we use the word diligence sometimes, and diligence is just the application of energy in a particular way. So it's a, it's a consistent application of energy, but a balanced energy. Not an energy where you have greed in the mind, and it's like, ah, you know, it's got the excitation to it. And it's not an energy where you are not feeling it, and you, you have a version where you're you know, you're just kind of in the freeze or flee or freeze mode, which is part of the autonomic nervous system when we are, we are afraid, it's really understanding it's a balanced energy. So it's helpful when we apply energy to have a steadiness of mind or ease or balance or poise. And so, so when, we, when we do the energy or when we apply energy, 
it's helpful if it's and in what we call the spiritual powers or spiritual you know power is energy right spiritual powers has to do with you know application of energy but it has to be balanced with steadiness of mind or concentration and how do we know that we are applying diligence or we're being persistent we're being patient we're con being continuous with our application of a balanced energy how do we know that that's where the mindfulness comes in the mindfulness and the clearly knowing or the wisdom so even with that before we even decide we're going to do this there has to be some level of faith or some level of oh this might work and for some of us it's, it could be as simple as understanding that the universe is a, is, a, is a place where we can be safe or there's at least enough safety in the universe for us to at least to be present or at least to be awake so that this faith can't be just like some of us like when I first came around I was so happy to not be in hell that just not being in hell was a really good place <laughs> to be. So I may have had faith that was, I would say, might even be blind faith because I might be thinking, oh man, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to be enlightened, I'm going to levitate, I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. So that doesn't necessarily work either, having blind faith. But, it's, but we have to have some faith so that we don't have Cynicism, because some of us are really intellectual and we understand how the world is and how dangerous, dangerous the world is, that we could be cynical. So the faith has to be balanced with clearly knowing or at least investigating and, and understanding, well, you know, uh, okay, so we got to use the intellect. And it's even helpful if we understand what we're doing or how to approach it so that we have the right information. Then we can reflect and think, okay, does that make sense or does it not make sense? But ultimately what it comes down to is seeing if it's true from an internal subjective experience or what we might call insight. And so this mindfulness is, even though it's hard to grasp, I, I can read a couple of things that give you a little bit more of a flavor for it, is being present and not judging, just being able to observe things from this quiet receptivity, this ease, that if we can do that, and then if we make the right effort, and if it's a balanced effort, then maybe with the mindfulness and the diligence and the steadiness of mind, there's clearly knowing, or there's a knowing of what's happening from a really kind of um, basic broad knowing to a deep understanding. So you have these factors, we call them the factors, um, the spiritual factors that they, one of the things mindfulness does is it balances them, but it also helps to cultivate them. So there's going to be times when we feel like we don't have any faith and oh, my first time going on a three, uh, nine day retreat, I couldn't believe I signed up for it. So, oh, this is awful. I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, but what happens is, because of right effort, because of faith, just hang in there and then continue to do the practice and then you write, oh, okay. Okay, things change. Wow. And then we start to develop conviction so we see for ourselves, oh, if I pay, the mindfulness protects me. Wow. And when I can notice that I'm in an unwholesome state of mind, like say if I'm in greed, if greed is in the mind, uh, or if aversion or anger is in the mind, then the anger is these glasses. I'm seeing hate. I'm hating. Because this is, this is what is there. But we don't even know we have the hate glasses on. So once we start to understand things and start to see just by being still and knowing, just by being mindful from moment to moment, we can start to see when there's anger in the mind, this is how we see red. When there's sadness in the mind, we can see low energy. And when there's excitation or when we get worried and restless, that there's a certain amount of, you know, sort of heightened, you know, what we call being keyed up. And so we start to understand that just by understanding our mind or understanding the energy level, understanding the mind state or the attitude that in which we're seeing things, that is not the truth. It's just based on the attitude or the tendency of the mind, our tendencies that are, that are allowing us to see some things and not see other things. And so you can see where, where energy is, it, it takes energy, and it's interesting because if you practice a certain way, like I did when I first came around, you sit here and, you know, you, or you just sit through things and you just, <clears throat> you're in bread and you just, you just sit there until uh, the sky falls or hell freezes over. You just sit there. Well, that's, you know, that's meditating with greed. Spiritual greed. And it's, it's way too, took me years to figure that out. That's way too complicated. It's really simple. We can just sit back and just, just notice, oh, it's an ease. You know, it's like the tortoise with the tortoise in the hair. I was the hair before I wanted to run. Then I get tired. I got to sleep. Well, you know what happens when you go to sleep? You snooze, you lose. But the tortoise is just, just kind of going and said, look at that dude, he's so slow. You know, he ain't going to never get there, but he gets there, or she gets there. Easy does it, just steady. I think there was a song in, in the day by Hokey Carmichael called Slow Motion Gets You There Faster, or something like that. So you don't have to believe me, just check it out. And so when we start to understand that, okay, so this energy thing is really important. And if we're going to, this if we're going to have to alter our level of thinking, then how are we going to do that skillfully? What can we do? How can mindfulness help us to infuse ourselves with energy? That's an interesting question, huh? And so I have an answer for that. <laughs> so actually, the, the right effort is really important. You know, so it's not only the continuous application of balance effort, but it's also understanding what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And so we talk about, so when an unwholesome state of mind like greed or anger or hatred arises, we learn how to skillfully abandon it. Not getting rid of it in order 
for it to go away, but just to notice when it arises, how do we abandon it? How are we able to let go? And so there's ways we can do that. And if we have enough mindfulness, we can see, okay, so if there's, you know, if there's a lot of hatred, maybe we can use the opposite of loving kindness. You know, I remember first going into 12-step recovery and, and I was complaining about my ex-wife and they said, pray for her. And I, I wanted, to, I don't, I wasn't happy with that, <laughs> with that suggestion. And then it became, do that with people that, I, you know, that I was not, you know, that would treat me badly or whatever. That by praying for them, or by looking at them differently, changed the way I looked at them, that they changed. But really, they didn't change, I changed. So it's just understanding how do, I, how do I get out of that. Now, sometimes if we have the intellect and we like to reflect a lot, we can reflect on the consequences of having anger in the mind, especially if we're talking to a loved one or the boss or a parent. You know, that word comes out, or those words come out, and we say, uh-oh, how can we grab them back? And usually with anger, it's usually displaced. It usually comes out, to, you know, and somebody had nothing to do with it. They just happened to be in the right place at the wrong time. And we just all of a sudden, boom. So we start to understand that, that there's a way of abandoning the anger. There's a way of knowing that the consequences of having it are not so helpful. And then there's, we get to the point where we know, okay, anger's in the mind. How can I avert attention to something else so that I don't feed it? That's an option. And then there's the other option that happens at some point is when the mindfulness is strong, we actually investigate and see what the anger, what the mind is like when anger is present. How does the body feel? So that we actually turn towards the anger and start to investigate what is this. And this is when it's really important to have a quality of interest or curiosity or saying, well, what is this? How can I look at this? How can, you know, I want to understand this. I want to really get to the, to the bottom of this. So we can do it that way. And of course, the last resort is, you know, like a strong, you know, like, you know, grin and bear it or, you know, clench your teeth and try to work through it. Like I did when I sat through pain. It worked, but my knee will never be the same. That wasn't so skillful. So you understand what I'm saying? So we do that with, 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 with a negative emotion. And so then, so when, a, when an unwholesome mind state or unwholesome thought comes up, that we can abandon it by either, like I said, by thinking, focusing on the opposite thought, by reflecting on the negative consequences, by averting attention from it, or just turning towards it and having that be the the object of awareness makes sense. So now, so that's part of it. And so the other part of it is to prevent it, you know, once it, so that, what I talked about is, is already arisen. So you abandon it. And then there's the other part of preventing it from arising in the first place. And so we talk about that as guarding the sense doors. So you're sitting in meditation here and you're, just sitting, breathing in, breathing out, and being aware of sitting and being present. And then fire engine comes down the street, makes or something else, or somebody comes in and makes 
makes noise. Now it's interesting because the noise, that is not really accurate perception. That's an interpretation. So you can sit here and if you have the right attitude of I'm going to be here and be with whatever comes up, when the sound comes into your awareness, you, you, you notice it as sound instead of fire engine, noisy. And so just by noticing that we can choose to just notice that the process of hearing is occurring, so you just what we call guarding the sense, you just notice hearing is going, notice smelling, tasting, feeling. So it's not, oh, my knee, it's hurting. It's, it's, it's hurting so bad it's going to turn into gangrene. That we can just notice, oh, it's a sensation. So that we start to relate to things with an attitude of, okay, it's here. Just let it be here. And the funny thing about sound is very interesting. If you just be still, and it'll just flow by. If you don't get involved and make it into noise, because that's what we do. We make it into noise. That's suffering. And so we understand that there's a way of doing that. So those, you know, that sounds, you know, you notice that this is kind of the low point of the talk because I'm talking about this negative stuff and just talking about it's like, like that. Now we get to go into the, the, the other side, which is wholesome mind states. So when a wholesome mind state arises, how do we maintain it? Or how do we get a wholesome mind state to arise? And of course, mindfulness is one of those, so practicing mindfulness is important. But I have some things here that talk about it. Um, so there's a guy down the road. Uh, his name is Sean. Let me see which one I want to mention first. His name is Sean Acor, and he wrote a couple of books. The first one is The Happiness Advantage. And so here's the research. Uh, from his book. Job successes are not predicted, uh, are predicted by, not by intelligence, by IQ. And even though EQ is cool, emotional intelligence is helpful. But the real deal is uh, your optimum level, levels. When you have high optimum le levels, that is really helpful. So why is that helpful? Well, and that's what right effort does. It raises your optimism level. So when you're happy, so the research says that you're happy first, then you're successful. Now, a lot of us have it backwards and say, well, when I'm successful, I'll be happy. Well, that may not come, but you can be happy now. That's a choice. Ninety percent of our long-term happiness is predicated on how the brain processes our experience. So he calls it the... Uh, um, positive genius. In other words, so the proverbial glass is either half empty or half full, right? And so both, you can look at it either way and you're right. But one way, if you look at it as being half empty, then there's scarcity, there's anxiety, it's not enough. If you look at it as half full, then is a different experience. And what happens, our cognitive functioning actually gets better. So what does that mean? That means that our ability to see and to think and to feel is expanded. So when we get into that fight or flight or when we come from that place of seeing it as being half, half empty, then we're in tunnel vision. And the solution 
to the problem is right out of it. That's what Einstein was saying, that we get stuck at that level. And what we have to do is we have to open up, we have to raise our level or open our vision. And we can do that just by our attitude towards how we see things. So when you get the mind at positive, it reduces a lot of things, but it also enhances our cognitive functioning, not to mention that it, reduce, it releases things, this, this chemical, it's called dopamine. What we need to be able to do is to reverse the formula of, which is, you know, you're, you're successful, then you're happy. So when we get into knowing we're happy first, not only does it make you happier, it tur turns on all of the learning centers in your brain, and it releases, it flushes the brain with what they call dopamine. Now, you heard of the word dope, right? That's what dopamine is. <laughs> dopamine is better than dope. <laughs> but this is what happens, it's, it's a natural high, is that when we get into positive, you know, some of you who run, you get that run is high, it's similar to that. You play sports and you get in the zone, it's similar to that. So that just by getting love of learning and learning and then the discovery of learning can be very rewarding in terms of releasing this dopamine and putting us in a positive mind state where we actually experience the journey rather than the goal. Does it make any sense? And so if you have a company or if you want to enjoy your job, you raise your optimism le levels, and it's by right effort, knowing how to, to help have a rise, uh, a positive or wholesome mind state like happiness. And he has five research habits in which you can do that. The first one I, I remember is really as simple as just smiling three times a day. And then you can do things like an act of kindness you know, where it's anonymous. But here's the three things. It says three things to be grateful for. If you write three things you can be grateful for, and it takes 21 days to create a new life habit, and I think it's 66 days to really groove it. But just think about that. 45 minutes a day, you just write th three new things you're grateful for. What do you think is going to happen? What happens is you are programming your mind to see things to be grateful for. So the opposite is what we do most of the time. We're programmed to see what's wrong and to focus on problems. So much so that before this positive psychology movement, all psychology was about was the pathology. Abnormal psych, why, you know, when the brain is not working. We know that, we study that very well. And so now I'm saying, you know, you don't even have to abandon the, the negative and prevent the negative from arising. If you just focus on, on cultivating happiness, you just focus on, if we just focus on cultivating how can we be more loving, how can we practice the art of loving, that, that in and of itself, you can only think of one thing at a time, it's going to generate a positive mind state so that you start to see things a certain way. So when you're happy, you're less depressed, and people like being around you. <laughs> it becomes contagious. Does that make any sense? So I'll just share the other three. So the second one is the doubler. And you think of a meaningful experience for two minutes a day, and you write it down, every detail you can remember. So what happens is it's called the doubler because when you write about it, you re-experience it. So once again, the brain doesn't know the difference between what it thinks and what it experiences. 
And so when you think about something, this is what happens when have, people have PTSD. They keep re-experiencing because it comes to mind, intrusive thoughts or whatever, and they actually their body is actually releasing the chemicals as if they're going through it. And so we can switch it and do it in a positive way. So you write about it, and if you share it with somebody and tell them, oh, this is what happened to me, it was great, then you re-experience it and you double double it. That's why they call it the doubler. Okay, so the third one is fun 15. So you find some activity you can do for 15 minutes and have fun. And it says have to be, it has to be active and you have to be mindful of the activity. Is that word again. You could be happy and don't know it. <laughs> it doesn't exist unless you are, are conscious of it and you recognize it and you accept it. Because that's the problem when we shut off the negative emotions, we shut off the happiness and everything else as well. So that's the thing about shutdown, it shuts out everything. So the heart closes down, the idea is to open the heart. So then there's the ripple effect, which I talked about, smiling three times a day. And then the other thing is just, you know, reaching out meaningful social connections. Think about one person in your social support network. For two minutes, write them a positive note or email or text or... Instagram, you know, we have a lot of media now. We could reach out to people. And it might even be better just to sit down and have coffee with them and tell them how much you appreciate them. That's novel. Or maybe not coffee. Maybe you just sit down and talk to them or go for a walk. So that, that fits the other part of job success, which is the social support. So if your job is supporting you and, and if you're able to experience high levels of optimism, then that really helps with the third part they talk about, which is what, what is referred to as stress. That's the first noble truth, suffering. You know, we, we, we get old, we get sick, and we die. And life is stressful because things are constantly changing, and because they're constantly changing, there's unsatisfactoriness, and that to make matters worse, we have this illusion of self, separateness, which it is an illusion. We're all connected. But when we experience I, me, and mine, that creates separation, and self-centered fear comes as a result of that. And so on some level, we can start to see that we are all the same. And when we, we can see that is that when somebody is experiencing anger or frustration, it's not personal. Well, when we approach something or we avoid something, it's not personal. As a human being, we all do it. We're wired to do that. So we think, oh, this is my pain. It's just me. Oh, I'm so awful. Oh, I'm so wonderful. Well, dude, you know, if somebody under the same condition, they can experience the very same thing. So it's not like we're unique in the sense that we're really bad or we're really good. No, we're human. And there's an experience that we have when we relate to our experience in a certain way. Make sense? And so I don't want to talk a lot more, but maybe I'll say a few words about mindfulness because I haven't really said much about mindfulness, although talking about what it does. But here's a couple of things that might help. Ajahn Chah, who is this forest master from Thailand, said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, 
and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Now, a while ago when I talked about the glass being half empty and half full, one of the things that Sean Accord talked about was not only is a glass they're half empty and half full, but there's a pitcher of water right next to it that you can pour more water in if you need to. And that is positive genius. That is cultivating wholesome mind states. That is being loving. That is, you know, thinking of self and other, relating to self and other with loving kindness, with generosity, understanding how things work so that we're relating to people in a way that we're becoming wiser and more skillful with how to create wholesome harmonious um, environments. Make sense? And so that is just one of the definitions or one of the things that kind of points to mindfulness. Here's the thing I like to read. It's about wonder because I believe it was Aristotle said that wisdom begins in wonder and this is all about becoming wiser, becoming more understanding, getting more understanding on how we work, how the universe works so it's not so scary. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us, a passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. Now, how often do we do that? Do we just sit and just let things speak to us? When I, I in another world, I was a sports, uh, uh, before I was a sports psychologist, I was a financial analyst. And I used to do a lot of uh, financial reporting and doing analyses and things like that. And uh, what used to be helpful is after I prepared the financial documents is just to let them speak to me, just to listen and to see what they were telling me. Of course, if you watch NCIS, then you see, you know, the pathologist, well, what's Mr. So-and-so going to tell me? Mr. So-and-so is dead. But he has a story to tell. If we just still be still and know, we can see things. And so things speak to us. And if things, if it's true that things are changing all the time, so even though I, I read this a thousand times, when I read it today, I'm different, and the conditions are different than they were when I read it the last time. But do we really see that? That there is a difference if we really pay attention that things are changing all the time. And that what we hold in mind becomes our reality. So if we are holding thoughts of, of uh, greed, hatred, confusion, then that's what we're creating. But if we're holding thoughts and mind states of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, then we're creating harmony and we're actually creating um, more compassion, more generosity. That makes any sense. So as a result of letting things speak to us, what can happen? We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Now, I'm sure I had that experience m many times, but about 30 years ago, when I left the detox, because I was addicted to drugs and alcohol, 
And it happened to be in my neighborhood. I was living in Dorchester at the time, and the place was called Dorchester Detox. So I walked home that morning. I got out of the detox, 21-day program, and I saw my street for the first time. I'm pretty sure when I looked in the mirror, I probably saw myself for the first time. And so we can see that, and we see it for the first time, and it speaks to us. There's different levels. This uh, theoretical physicist, his name was David Bohm, he, talks, he used to talk about when we observe our experience, if we compare, and this is what mindfulness does, because one of the things mindfulness has is it has memory, and it, and it reminds us or brings to mind uh, disparate things that are connected or see where things are connected. He said that if we look at, observe what, is our, what we're experiencing in the moment and compare it to what we expected to have happen, that we'll see, we'll see there'll be a new learning and that we can go through that process over and over and never come to an end. I remember my Tai Chi teacher, Master Bosin Mark, used to say we'd be, I used to take private lessons from her and she used to say whole life. And what does she mean by that? She said, you could practice this, Georgie, she used to call me Georgie, your whole life and you keep getting to a different level. You keep getting to a deeper level. There's no end to it, to how much we can improve. And so you can check it out. And sometimes you see that, and here's the interesting thing, because we see through the filter of, okay, you know, so-and-so is going to be a certain way. So I look at him, and even though I haven't seen him in 20 years since we were in high school, I'm still looking at him like, oh, he's, you know, he's a whatever, instead of just saying, okay, why can I just see who he is now or who she is now? And people do that to us too, and we don't like when, it's, when people put us in a box or they're, they're, not, they're not there. They, they're talking to you, but they're relating to you as Eric Fohm talked about an automaton. It's a, sort of um, not a real self, but a, you know, a proximity. Not even a proximity. It's a false self. It's a proto-self. or it's, it's like we can't be real because people won't like us if they really knew who we are. So we present, you know, you might have two people in a conversation and you have if I'm one of them, there's a person I am, there's a person that they think I am, and there's a person I want them to think I am. That's a lot of people in the room. <laughs> you know, and you can feel it when it's not real. And so to be able to be present, to have your heart open to this moment as it unfolds and realizing that we don't know the future. Everything's unknown. Things are going to change. We do know that. And in spite of things changing, we could choose how we want to be in the change. So in the, around here, we talk about the precepts, not killing, not stealing, not lying, not taking intoxicants, not getting involved in sexual misconduct. We talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. So we talk about the fact that there was a person, the Buddha, and that we all have Buddha nature, or Christ consciousness, or divinity, that we all, through the teachings, we can become free as well. And that there's teachings of the law, the Dhamma. There's a way that we can follow. And that there's a community, a Sangha, of like-minded people doing it. And that we can sit here and that actually the Sangha, in a more uh, ad, you know, expanded uh, definition, 
not only includes the monastic, but includes the fact that each time I sit here and I'm being peaceful and not allowing my addictions or allowing my hatred or my uh, unskillfulness to develop, then that energy is helping the whole planet. It's helping everybody because we're all connected. If you want to talk about the, you know, un you know, collective unconscious or whatever, that we have this energy. We are energy, and if we're energy, we're vibrating. And if you're vibrating, those vibrations are interacting. <laughs> so to think that we're not, that we're separate, you know, that's that's a good one. It's a good one. But if we think it, or if we think a certain way, and then we close down, then that's what we experience. And so, I want to leave some time for discussion. So, I think I'm going to end there. I just want to check to see if there's anything else I wanted to mention. So, just just on a personal note, uh, I was writing this book and investigating right effort, right? We've been talking about right effort. And I noticed there was a word, enthusiasm, in the definition. I said, where did that come from? It's been there the whole time. But I guess because I'm different, I was able to see it this time. But it, it just, it was, it was funny. It's like I've been there, but now, you know, I, it's like I was there for the first time. And this enthusiasm, which is the spirit within, that's really important. That we actually can choose how we relate to things so, so I talked about stress, the third thing. But I talked about optimism levels, and I talked about the uh, social support. And then the third thing is stress, that we can either react or respond to stress. We can choose our response. We can react to it and say, oh, it's stress. We can't handle it. Or we can choose our response that says, okay, it's a challenge. It's going to be great. Let me see how to do this. And this is what the elite athletes do. When they get in the high state of arousal, it's very close to being in the zone. They don't look at it like, okay, I'm over my head. I shouldn't be doing this. They look at it like, okay, what skill, knowledge, or experience, or what do I have to do to, to get to that next level, you know, to get over that hump? But I have this. It's going to be great. So the, the glass is half full. So that attitude is what gets them over because it gives them access to more energy, more positive energy. Make sense? And so I know I'm rambling a little bit today, but this is something I wanted to talk about. So I'll end there, and then I'll open it up for discussion, questions. Okay, do we have a microphone? So just raise your hand, and I'll call on you and use the mic questions or experience, whatever. Yes, there's a gentleman over there. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Good. Um, I was just wondering, uh, as a sports psychologist, if you might be able to talk some more about how, in your work, you apply concepts of mindfulness um, same working with teams or basketball teams or also um, I know many of us uh, try to work out and jog or run or work out in the gym. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.